BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Something in my gut decided I have to turn this grief and sadness into purpose. Me personally, be a part of the change. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to Real Pod. I am glad to be back and chatting with you all today. I hope you're doing well. I know there has been a lot going on in the world right now. And in educating myself and reading up on stories from incredible black people and black women, I came across a very powerful Refinery29 article written by our fabulous guest today. I was so lucky to steal some of her time. And her name is Nikeo Grieco, and she is the founder of Nikeo Beauty. She is a first-generation American of Kenyan descent and used her grandma's Kenyan beauty secrets to help launch her skincare company into the successful brand that it is today, which can be bought online at both Ulta and Target. But aside from being a successful female entrepreneur, Nikeo also works with Girls Inc. to mentor young women of color, and she also has been using her platform to advocate for and promote the Black Lives Matter movement, a movement that I proudly stand behind as well. And in today's interview, Nikeo opens up about what the current times have been like from her perspective and experience, as well as discusses her successful career as a female entrepreneur. So I am so excited for you all to hear from her today, and let's dive into the Well, Nikeo, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm grateful to have some of your time. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Thanks for having me. You are a busy woman. You have a family, you have kids, you have your own business. <laughs> so I appreciate the spare second. How have you been? Ah, oh, gosh, it's such a weighted question. I mean, obviously, like the rest of the world, I've been, you know, dealing with just a lot of heartbreak the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, but that being said, um, you know, I'm hoping that we're living in, in the midst of a movement and not a moment um, that, you know, I keep telling my kids that, you know, without darkness, there can be no light. And I think that, you know, with the state of, of the world and, and, you know, the unfortunate circumstance of systemic racism that if I were to look to a place of hope is that, you know, we finally have gotten 
gotten the light shown on hatred to a level where we can't ignore it anymore. And so, so I have hope that, you know, we will do the work and, and move in the right direction to end a 400 year virus. It, and it is a virus. And I really was moved by the way, and I, I loved your Refinery29 article, first of all. That was that was amazing. Um, I'm sure that was a lot to write and put into words. Sometimes putting our emotions on paper, it's just, especially emotions like this, where you can't even find the words. Um, right, right. Yeah, I mean, when I was asked to do the story in the beginning, I was, you know, didn't know how I was going to be able to wrap all of the thoughts that I had, you know, on a constant loop in my head um, on paper. But, but to your point, yeah, it's it was a very therapeutic exercise, and you know, there were a lot of tears shed, kind of looking at the whirlwind that's been the last, you know, three months of all of our lives. Um, but, you know, putting it on paper was, was definitely a healing exercise for me. You've had quite the quarantine experience. I mean, most <laughs> of us are fearing the coronavirus. You hosted it in your household. How is your husband doing now? Is he better? Doing, yes, he's amazing. He's recovered and, you know, back to his old self. And yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, he um, got sick, like, his fever started the day before shelter at home even started. So I think we were all just kind of catching up to it. The idea of what is this? And, you know, I mean, my daughter's birthday party was supposed to be that weekend. And I ended up like postponing it for three weeks later, thinking that like, whatever's happening, like we'll have a couple of weeks at home and, you know, and they'll get it under control. And, you know, at the time, I think, you know, I mentioned in the refinery article that my husband had, had tested positive for the flu and at that time, they were saying that, you know, if you have flu A, that that means you don't have COVID. And and luckily, when he got his flu test, he simultaneously got a COVID test. But at that time, also COVID results, there were new tests, you know, it was taking such a long time to get it. So while he thought he was battling the flu for, you know, over a week, we, and he just kept getting worse and kept getting worse and kept getting worse. It wasn't until the middle of the second week that we actually got the positive diagnosis that it was COVID. So then it was like a whole other level of panic kicked in because- You're like, what have we touched? Have we shared forks, the kids, yeah. everything? Yeah, I mean, the good thing is with the flu being as contagious as it is, and, and we had already sort of quarantined him into my son's room and the kids you know, were a little shaken by daddy being sick. So they were sleeping with me and everything going on, not going to school, not seeing their friends. So they were sleeping with me, but you know, I mean, I was definitely like going in in the middle of the night and like not wanting to wake him. So I would like put my lips on his forehead to see if he felt warm, you know, if the fever was breaking. Cause that, that was also an indication to me that this wasn't your typical flu because even with taking flu medication and, and getting the sleep and the liquids and everything, that fever just was not breaking. And um, so I think kind of instinctually in the back of my mind, I was like hoping it wasn't so, but that it could be that it could be COVID-19 and then ultimately it was. Um, but, you know, he is definitely one of the very, very lucky ones we all are that he was able to fight it out and battle it here at home and, uh, and didn't have to go to the hospital and that his results ended up in a recovery. Definitely. And I'm glad that you were able to even have him tested. I know another thing you've mentioned is just the inability for people to have access to that. And I mean, that was maybe one of the first revelations of the 
injustice based on race and different communities is what's accessible to you in a, in a health crisis. Right. No, I mean, that definitely crossed my mind, especially, you know, but we ended up going to um, an urgent care to get that, that was in our neighborhood. It's like a newer urgent care in our neighborhood. And when he went to get the flu, you know, he went in because his fever wasn't breaking and then they gave him the flu test, the flu test you get back immediately. And the doctor just mentioned, you know, we got some COVID tests in and, and he was able and, and very fortunate and lucky to get the COVID test right away um, on the very early end of the spectrum of, of this whole pandemic here in Los Angeles. Um, but I did have the, the thought that when he, you know, got in the car and gave me the flu results and then ultimately later when we found out that he had COVID, you know, thinking just how lucky we were to to be located in the city where we are um we don't live in what you would necessarily call like a low socioeconomic area and so you know that played into my mind but also the injustice and the unfairness and the disproportionate disproportionate resources that were already battling um during the pandemic and in black and brown communities that you know even just getting masks and gloves, much less tests, you know, for people in those communities. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how blessed and how lucky um, we were that my husband as a white man was able to, you know, step into an urgent care and immediately be offered a test that had just become readily available. And and thinking to myself, wow, I really hope that this, that this doesn't, because at that time too, on the early end of the spectrum, we weren't seeing a lot of cases in black people, like those very first early weeks of the pandemic coming this way. Um, in some ways we thought, well, gosh, we're doing well. And it wasn't until like after that in gestation period, you know, gestation period and whatever that we started to see, not only was it hitting our black and brown communities so hard, but it was also um, that the, the tests weren't as available and that you know, people were walking around with the virus um, or symptoms of the virus or no symptoms, but having the virus and spreading the virus in a communities where they weren't getting the help that they, they so fairly, you know, deserved and needed. Just the lack of the ability to have the equal opportunity to heal or to get service or to get care. And one of my favorite parts from your article was this the sentence and I want to read it it says is it not enough that we're dealing with a global pandemic with such disproportionate resources for people of color that we then are also reeling from the tragic loss of life due to racism and brutality and I mean that is so powerful and then you allude to this second virus that uh, that is suddenly brought to light that has been there for a long time which is racism on top of what's already happening to the black and brown community Right, right. I mean, it was it was definitely, you know, the worst version of a gut punch to our black and brown communities, our black communities, um, to have it come to light in such a visceral way with us all observing firsthand the death of George Floyd. Um, And then obviously, you know, even as a black woman, I hadn't even heard the story of Breonna Taylor until George Floyd, right? That had just happened, you know, in March, March 13th, I think was the date. And that we were just hearing of that story. So that was like yet another punch in the gut that like this happened and and we were unaware as a society that this had happened to this poor girl. And then 
you know, Ahmaud Aubrey. I mean, so much of, and let's be clear, people um, have been dying at the hands of brutality for way too long. And, and we know that, but for some reason, and I don't know if it's the pandemic of COVID-19 that, that forced us all to slow down so that we could actually observe in a bigger way what was happening, if it was a combination of that and watching the horrific murder of, of George Floyd um, over and over again um, played out in that way you know, the video of Ahmaud Aubrey, all of that coming to light during this time, I just, yeah, it was a lot. It was, it was compounded on, on, and, you know, from a personal standpoint where, yeah, I was lucky my husband was ill, but he was able to recover at home and he was on the road to recovery as we were experiencing most of this, but that it was just a lot. It was a lot. Personally, it was a lot to take in as a black person, as a black woman. It was a lot to, explain to your kids um and you know obviously i wasn't alone in that pain and 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 being overwhelmed but you know i also feel that you know the divine timing of it all happening during covid allows us to mobilize in a way that maybe we wouldn't be able to if we were all still so busy moving around in our lives pre-covid and you mentioned that conversation with your kids, and it's something that many people have been explaining. They shouldn't have to have that talk. I mean, we should have the talk of the birds and the bees, like, here's what you do if you like someone. But there's this additional talk that as a woman of color with children, you have to have. And you mentioned your parents having that talk with you. And if you don't mind sharing, what what did they say to you and how old were you and did you did you under was it the first time you realized something or were you like oh I know mom and dad um you know I mean I think I definitely you know I, I grew up for the first um almost nine years of my life on the east coast in New York and New Jersey and and grew up in a pretty um diverse community there um and then I moved to Oklahoma when I was nine um eight and a half um in second grade so so you know, when I got to Oklahoma and in the schools in the neighborhood that I lived in, there weren't a lot of women um, or children that looked like me. So, you know, I, I instantaneously felt, you know, the difference. But because I grew up in a college town like Norman, there were so many people coming into the town um, from other places um, because the school did an incredible job at recruiting um, people from all sorts of diverse backgrounds, I didn't necessarily feel like the stings of racism that maybe other people in, in smaller communities and in, you know, states like Oklahoma or in the South may have felt. Um, that being said, you know, from as early as I can remember, um, having the talk or those talks with my parents always, in, you know, entailed, you know, because you're black, you're going to have to work that much harder. Um, because you're black, there will be people in the world that just hate you because of the color of your skin, you know, especially for my brother, but also for myself as well, you know, conversations around how to behave if you do come in contact with law enforcement, um, while there are many great cops and, and great police officers that are out there risking their lives every day to serve and protect and, and live up to their oath, there are some bad apples and there are some bad seeds that, that get a badge. And to be very aware, 
that sometimes those bad seeds might be the people who pull you over or, or target you and how to behave. And, and I don't know, I think, you know, when you're a teenager and your parents are having these types of talks and lectures with you, you take it with a grain of salt, you believe them, you respect them, or at least I did in my case. Um, but I don't know, I guess I also wanted to believe that, you know, all of the work that had been done by all of the change makers and heroes in our, in our history and our past had, had allowed me and, and, and it has allowed me to live my life in a certain way that I didn't want to give a lot of merit to the fact that those cops, um, those, those racists were hiding out in, in dark corners and could, could appear at any given moment. Um, but as I got older, I had to accept it, that, that, that sad truth. And, and we as a society, well, we may not have seen every single one of these murders played out on video. Um, we knew they were happening, right? And, and those that, we were, that were actually getting the coverage, um, we knew they were happening. Um, and we saw the toll that racism had, you know, was taking on our country every day. You mentioned these dark corners and you gave an analogy of racism being like a cockroach. Would you explain that for me? Because I really thought it was great. Oh, thank you. Well, I think cockroaches are like the scariest um, creatures ever. And so (laughs) while we don't um, have cockroaches in our home, I've definitely seen cockroaches or been in places um, where uh, cockroaches have, have appeared and no offense to the cockroach, but I... I find them to be very scary and, and that they exist in the dark and they, and they kind of scurry around. And then when light comes is when they, when, when your fear kicks in, when you see them. And so my kids are also not fans of many bugs. Um, and so I just off the cuff, that was the first thing that came to my mind was discussing um, that racism is like a cockroach and it, and it hides in the dark and in, in deep dark corners Um and then when we turn on the light and they scurry, it's it's scary and, and it's very fearful. But in order to expose or eliminate a cockroach, you need to you need to draw it out into the light. And so for far too long, these racists, and not just on the police force, racists in general, racists that are members of the Klan and, and white supremacists have been been hiding out in their dark little corners until they decide to come out and attack. And that everything that's happening right now and the exposure, I want to believe and I have hope that by shining a light on this pandemic, on this virus, that by exposing it, that we will help to eliminate it. How did it feel when everything was first exposed and the rest of the world, non-Black and people who not who are not members of the black or brown community realize the severity. Were your emotions finally, I mean, like you're almost angry that it's taken this long or was it hope like now everyone's caught on? It was a mix of emotions. I mean, you know, yeah, there's the part of you that's like, yeah, see, like this happens, you know. Um, it was also just like so beyond heartbreaking, I mean, I will forever be haunted by like those words of George Floyd calling out for his mother in his last breath and like looking at my babies and, 
and thinking like he's someone's baby, he's someone's father and brother and partner and friend and seeing the hatred in, in, in that police officer's eyes that was, that knew that this man couldn't catch his breath and that he was, it was almost like he was proud of it. I mean, it was, it was beyond haunting and, and yeah, so it was heartbreak. It was shock. Like, I think just shock. It was an enormous amount of grief, like actual, I, I, I kept comparing like the way that I felt in my chest, in my heart, like the physiological feeling of like not being able to catch a full breath for days was very reminiscent of when I lost my father. Like it was like, it was a, it was feeling grief in your bones. And, and then slowly but surely, and we're all still grieving and we're all still processing, but like something in my gut decided and this happened as I was writing this article that like, I have to turn this grief and sadness into purpose. I have to, me personally, be a part of the change. And those that I love, my white friends, my black friends, my white family, my black family. I mean, I'm married to an Irish Italian man. Um, we all have to do this together. It can't just be on the shoulders of black people to stand up for ourselves. And so that's where I sit today where it's still like, I wake up and for like one brief moment, I forget about it. And then, and then you're fully awake and you're starting your day. It's just, you know, life looks different. And I think just like people speak about COVID, I don't think we'll ever go back to our pre-COVID lives. I think we will be living in what is a new normal. I feel the same um, about time when it comes to systemic racism. I mean, I'm checking my computer every five minutes, just praying that I will see that, that the people that murdered Brianna have been arrested. You know, there's so much of us that's still so unresolved. And as time goes on, and as this maybe isn't the lead news story, I think it's really important to keep spreading the message that we are living in a movement and not a moment and to stay on top of what's happening with, um, with these cases, with these prosecutions and that, you know, justice is really served and doing our part. And then we're also in an election year, which is also makes compounds everything um, that's happening that people, especially black voters, um, that we get out there and there's never been a more important time to choose our leaders wisely and not just at the national level, um, at the local level as well. That local level is where we choose judges. It's where we choose police chiefs. It's where we choose district attorneys. It's where it's almost, I'm not going to say it's a more, more important, but it is definitely as equally important to pay attention to our local politics um, so that we can make sure whoever's in charge doesn't bring any more of these bad cops to the force. That it's a movement, not a moment, it just really hits me. I think that's the best way to sum this up. It's not like even waking up this morning. I mean, it's not the start of a new week. Let's put everything behind us and channel it up for the next seven days like every other Monday. It's we have to use what's happened and and use it going forward. And I think one of the the 
coolest things that I've been seeing coming from this in the on the positive side is the support and the rally behind black businesses, black owners, black entrepreneurs, and what you've built with your whole brand and with your products is incredible. And you, I know you are a first generation of Kenyan descent. So that's hugely important. Um, and that's awesome. And I'd love to talk about you know, your business and building it and maybe the challenges you faced um, as a black woman trying to accomplish your dream. But I guess the, the place I want to start is what was the initial inspiration? And I love that it's named after you, Nikeo. That's so badass. Like, oh. I'm going to self-title it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's such an, you know, actually it's named after my grandmother who was named Nikeo. I just happened to have her name. Um, and she um, and my family, my Kenyan family, were the greatest inspiration um, for me to create the brand. I started out working in the entertainment industry after I moved to L.A. Um, from Oklahoma after college. And I worked as an assistant and as an agency. And then I worked on the studio side and I worked at some management companies. And ultimately, my last job in entertainment was working at a management production company on the representation side of the company. And I loved working with actresses, um, but what I found I loved the most um, in working in Hollywood was the fashion and beauty aspect of Hollywood. And I just loved being able to like go to photo shoots and be a part of, you know, their campaigns and deals when they were doing beauty deals or fashion deals. And, you know, I really noticed I was only 27 at the time that um, the continent of Africa was very underrepresented in, in beauty. And, you know, when it was represented, and this is the early 2000s, that it was represented in kind of this like kitschy way that didn't represent the African that I knew. And so I decided to leave my job and start a beauty brand based on the sophistication of Africa and its natural resources. But I had like a firsthand teacher in my grandmother, Nikeo, who when I was eight, visiting her in Kenya, taught me how to make my first beauty product um, by using Kenyan coffee beans from her farm and she would crush them and then she would add oils and then she would use sugarcane to exfoliate her skin. She grew rods of sugarcane and I would do that with her. And I thought that was so fascinating and so fun. And I grew up, you know, here in the States, but my mom would, you know, really um, use, you know, these beauty secrets. Her grandfather or her dad was a medicine man, my grandfather. So he had the ability to go out in nature and extract oils to treat the skin. So my whole life, I used oils on my hair, on my body, on my skin, and and that all came from my family. And so, you know, that was really the inspiration because I wanted more people to experience that part of Africa. Um, and also to represent, you know, women in a culture that had been sort of underrepresented in beauty um, here in the States. When was the first moment you said, okay, I'm going for it. Where am I going to make my product? How am I going to package it? How did your vision start coming to fruition? So, um, you know, I was still working at the entertainment um, management production company when I decided that I wanted to do it. And it happened, um, this will date me, but it happened soon after 9-11 in 2001 that I decided I was in my 20s and you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I was with my boyfriend, who is now my husband, and he's an artist. And I just loved the way that he lived his life, just like creating and and putting his creations and his like energy out into the world as his means of income and, and that he was following his passion. And when 9-11 happened, you know, obviously as a, as a world, we were all grieving. And I remember thinking to myself that, 
you know, I really like my job. I mean, I'm fine to do it every day, but I'm not feeling as inspired as I used to. And I just can't imagine for those people who had that same feeling on the last day of their lives going to work on 9-11 that maybe they weren't inspired by their jobs or they didn't love what they did, but mm-hmm. they liked it or they hated it, that that was their last day on earth. And, and it, it, I think it hit me in a way as a young person that like, you know, this is really the only time in our lives that we have to be selfish. Like before we start families, before we have kids, it's like that, like that sweet little moment in our lives when really we are our only focus and, and what we want to explore and do is so precious. And not to say that you can't start businesses and go do all of these things after you have kids or, or, you know, bigger stakes and commitments to take care of others, but it's a lot more difficult. And so I figured, you know, I don't want to wait for the perfect time. I'm just going to go for it now. And, you know, I have a real trigger to the word failure. And so people, you know, of course, everybody, including my parents were like, you're going to quit your job and do what? And make coffee scrub? Like, how do you think that's going to, you know, pay the bills? And, you know, in my mind, I've just always thought of the word failure as something that is, innocuous that you know when a child falls off a bike we don't say like get up you failure you know the only failure is not getting back on the bike and trying again and so I felt that same way about starting a business and my business has had lots of stops and starts that others might refer to as failure but to me they've been moments to grow and moments to actually take the lessons I've learned and and reshape and readjust and and you know kind of detour on my path. And, and so that's how I've always thought about it. And while it's not easy, um, you know, my mom always says, you know, being an entrepreneur is not easy if, you know, who wouldn't want to be their own boss. There is a real um, satisfaction and success in just following your dreams and, um, and living your life with, with purpose um, because it is, it's bigger than skin. Um, you know, having a skincare line, I'm super passionate about skin and beauty and, and all of that, but it's just a platform for me to be able to live my life with what I believe I was called to do. I love that you had the guts to go do that because so many people just continue in their routines, their rhythms, what they know will make their family happy, what they know will pay the bills. And I'm totally with you on that on on that boat of do what makes you happy and brings you purpose um and you mentioned way earlier in the podcast how something maybe your parents said to you was as a black person you will have to work harder and in your article you mentioned a stat which I'd never seen before and it was just ridiculous to me and the stat was that fewer than 0.2% of black female founders receive funding we're not talking like only 10% Point two percent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Was it 0.02? Yeah. Okay, so it's not 0.02. even point two. So it is basic, basically yeah. none. I mean, that is ridiculous. And so the, being an entrepreneur in general, being a female in general, and then being a black female entrepreneur, the obstacles, the challenges, how did you navigate those? So when I started, um, when I was 27, I, at this time, um, very falsely assumed that the reason that I would have a hard time funding is because I was a first time entrepreneur and that would be my only challenge. And now when I look back in retrospect, I'm glad that I thought that was my only challenge. I didn't even take into account being a woman or being a black woman as a challenge. 
I, I just thought it was experience. I was a little less afraid to go out and ask for help. Um, I, it, it makes me sad for, for entrepreneurs current day to have those kinds of statistics because it can deter you. It's important to have the knowledge, but sometimes and only sometimes is that kind of ignorance bliss. Um, and so, yeah, so I, you know, I knew I wasn't probably going to be able to raise from VCs or private equity because I was a new entrepreneur and I was a 27 year old in going into an industry. I had no experience, but I did know from going to school and studying business, how to write a business plan, how to interview potential investors. I knew about going the friends and family route, um, probably being the easiest way I, you know, to, for me to get the capital quickly because I needed to get it quickly because I had to pay the rent. And, um, and then I also knew that like, I may have to kiss a lot of frogs before I get a yes. And I was okay with that. Um, I built in a timeline of for myself so that I could, I knew exactly how long I had to shop the investment to raise and to be in business. And, and I was able to meet that goal and it was aggressive, but I was lucky to have people who wanted to see me win and to support me in my, in my journey. And, you know, it wasn't a lot of money. So I was, you know, shipping and receiving the founder, head of sales, packing boxes every night myself, you know, I had to use whatever capital I had to keep the business running. And so I wasn't able to outsource a lot of those jobs, but then, you know, I also feel like that was the best way to learn how to be an entrepreneur was to try to do every job and then to very quickly learn that you can't do every job so that then as you decide to grow in your business and scale your business, that you know what to look for um, in the next cycle delegating your work and getting help and there's so much hustle that goes into it I believe you were packaging all the boxes and doing all the stuff I mean it's the only way and I get the vibe from you I can tell that you're you're very calm you're very thought through you give a you just a loving warm aura and that to me would make me think in times of stress and chaos you would be able to keep your cool really well because I know at least building my own kind of brand it is stressful. Um, and you talk about having to pay the rent and pursue your dream and manage people. How did you, were you able to maintain this uh, tranquil um, persona or did you develop that with time? How was your mental health in creating your empire? <laughs> it's challenging. I mean, as we said before, like being an entrepreneur is not easy and you definitely have days where you are on your knees in tears. I mean, that is a reality. Um, in, in business. And, you know, I think for me, um, one of the biggest pieces of advice that I would give my younger self is to go easy on yourself and to allow yourself to feel right. I think sometimes when you're in business, you're just so laser focused in, in getting to the next level and success that you don't, um, always allow yourself to just feel and, and, lead with your feelings and authenticity in certain decisions. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I have definitely arrived at the place in my life where, you know, if I get to do what I love to do every day as a means of income and supporting my family, then I'm very lucky. But if this were to all 
go away tomorrow. Speaking of this brand, as an entrepreneur, you're not a one-trick pony. If this is the life that you've chosen, there will be other brands and other businesses and other versions of you in some way, shape, or form. And so just to be open to that and to, and to be okay to redirection. You know, I've had, as I said, many starts and stops that others might call failure and, you know, but I've had some real doors closed, waiting, waiting, waiting for windows to open. And, and there was heartbreak in those doors closing. There were heartbreak. There was a lot of heartbreak in some of those relationships, um, business relationships ending. But by keeping the faith and staying the course and just being open and calling in what it is that you want, it has never failed me that whatever came next was a much better version of where I was trying to go with much bigger lessons to learn with much more opportunity for not just growth in the business, but personal growth. So yeah, the hustle is still real. Like I am 18 years in and just had another launch, you know, and, and, and then the world happened. So yeah, I mean, it's staying the course. And even during times like this, where it is beautiful to see how people are really, really answering the call in being vocal about their support of black people in our communities and our businesses. But as a business woman, um, there is that, you know, always that little bit of fear of like, Hey, when, what about when this stops or there's new news and how do you, how do you keep the momentum? And then there's also this sensitivity of like, I really haven't felt like selling products over the last couple of weeks. I haven't felt like pushing them. I haven't felt like logging on to see what I've sold. I've been sad and really, really heartbroken. And so, you know, it's a balance. And, you know, I did wake up today ready to go back to work, but I now see that my work is so, it's so much more than I thought it was two or three weeks ago, you know, before, yes, I was a black female founder with a new brand that needs to be told and shared with the masses at Target, right? Now, my job responsibility and my title and my role is so much bigger than just black female founder with a brand at Target. I have to be a change maker and I have to be a voice for change and I have to use my platform and my business to continue the work I do with young girls, to help alleviate generational poverty, to speak more about the work that I do mentoring girls in low socioeconomic economies, helping them to embrace STEM programming and get their grades up and go to college and be people who come back to their communities and, and help to lift up others in their communities. Like it's so much bigger than skin. And that can feel so overwhelming because maybe a few months ago you were just thinking about, okay, my target line, let's sell the product. But now you are rep, you represent so much more. I mean, you are the 0.02% that was extremely successful. What do you hope to inspire in other young women, all women who, who hope to have that confidence in themselves? Right. I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of what I spoke about, you know, I partnered with Girls Inc. long before I ever had a product on shelf um, because it was work that I wanted to see um, being done in our communities. And, 
And I've been very fortunate to seek out and have some incredible mentors in my life, especially in my business life, that I knew that if I had had mentors earlier, especially when it came to, you know, work and, and following my dreams and business, that there was a lot of mistakes I could have avoided or a lot of people that I may not have trusted had I had mentors to lean on to, to discuss where I'm at. And, and then it made me realize that mentorship has to start so much younger. So my advice would be as a young entrepreneur or anybody building a business, you're doing something bigger than having a line of clothing or opening a pizza joint. You're being a change maker in your community. So to build in as that is a, a key pillar and part of your business is what are you doing for society and how are you helping to change a community and, and whatever you're passionate about. So yeah, my biggest advice is as you're growing, as you're, as you're putting together your idea for your business, think about from day one, who is this business going to benefit? How am I going to change the world with my business? And you can do that with a pizza joint or a line of socks or a beauty brand. I love that. I've just been so inspired by you talking with you today. Thank you so much. I mean, my final question was going to be, what's your biggest advice for entrepreneurs, but you just gave it and it was incredible. So don't wait for the perfect moment. And yeah. we talked about that earlier. But yeah, that's my other piece of advice is just get your ducks in a row and have a plan and just go for it. I love that. I totally agree. Well, That's thank you amazing. so much, Nikeo. I really appreciate your time. It was an honor and privilege to speak with you. Thanks for sharing you your, your heart with us today and everything that you've been going through. And um, I'm really grateful. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If you guys enjoyed this episode with Nikeo Greco, make sure you follow her online and support her business. You can buy her products online at Target and Ulta Beauty. So go check those out. She's worked so hard on them as you have heard from her story. So let's go support her. And also you can follow her Instagram. It is at Nikeo, N-Y-A-K-I-O. And you can also follow her product Instagram, which is Nikeo Beauty at N-Y-A-K-I-O Beauty. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I will see you back here for another episode next Wednesday.